Welcome to this week's Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Byron Pace, and you are? I'm Daryl. Hi, how you doing? <laughs> He's sitting here too. Uh, we've got a fun-filled podcast ahead uh, with things like this. Wicka, wicka. How am I going to drink this? Remix. You'll just have to like straw. You need a straw. <laughs> this is- you, can, you, can, you can grab the mic and move it away. How dare you just, <laughs> suggest such a thing? A biodegradable straw. Did you see the straws uh, that someone came out with the other day made of pasta? Pasta, uh, pasta, pasta straws. Pasta? Yeah, pasta. 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 Yeah. We had this argument. I thought you said it was made of pasters. No. <laughs> Pasties. <laughs> no, no, we no. had this argument the other day. Well, how to pronounce pasta. Yeah. So Valentine said it the same way. In the UK, they say pasta. But in took me a little Italy, bit. they say pasta, like we say pasta. Well, I'm so, Italian, so I know that. Right. So, you know. <laughs> so we're wrong. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Aluminium. <laughs> I live yes. on Aluminium Street. I, I I agree that that's the way, a, that, the way that we there, say it's it. It's not. Is, I know. I know. We're wrong. I U M. I know. I know. And this. Away. <laughs> <laughs> Away with y'all. A shoe. But Byron has one say. beer. This is what we say in America. And he turns okay, into his. Magistrate mode. Away. <laughs> Away. Butch, come here. This is what we do in America. Go lie down. Hit the bricks. Go lie down. And a little bit more of this. Some moron brought a cougar to a party and it went berserk. <laughs> so you can see, we had a really good time recording this. Uh, I was over in Montana. We were editing... Uh, volume four, Modern Huntsman, which has landed in the UK now, by the way. So I need to change it from officially. Officially, yeah, I need to change it from pre-order to order on our website. But if you if you order it, it will go out within the next couple of days of you placing an order. So I, no, I don't think you need to bother changing it. People don't read it anyway. No, no that is very very true. Uh, so get your hands on Volume Four, the woman's issue. And if you don't know what that is all about, you're about to hear it because uh, Nicole Coltieri is the guest editor-in-chief of this issue. Uh, she talks a little bit about her background, how she got into hunting, uh, what it's been like playing that role within the Modern Huntsman team. Very cool. Yeah, and, very exciting. Uh, yeah, I've I've seen the cover and I've seen quite a lot of the, the content inside. Not read any, just glanced over it. And uh, it's going to be a very, very good issue. I, I can't wait to start getting the feedback. I think some of the... Uh, uh, people in the States who had pre-orders are probably getting in their hands now. Yeah, so if you see people in the States with Mon Huntsman, please don't send us an email saying, where's my copy? <laughs> they got it first. They did by about a week. <laughs> um, but it, it is here now, so you should get it within the next few days with any luck. And let us know what you think. Yes. We'd like to keep, hear that feedback. We'll pass it on to the team at Modern Huntsman, and we'd like to hear what you think uh, about our contributions as well. Definitely. As Daryl has an article with Lisa, and I did uh, an article on Annette Olofsson, who I spent a lot of time with this summer. Yeah. I'm just trying to find... Um, I got sent an email uh, yesterday from 
part of our podcast provider thing with some reviews, but I can't find it. I'll some try and of find our it. reviews. Yes, yeah, uh, a couple of people left some really good reviews, and uh, I was trying to find it. But okay, well, I will I will mention a couple of things while Dal is digging around. Uh, the first thing is Northern Shooting Show, 8th and 9th of May next year, 2020. It seems a little bit away yet, but the pre-order tickets are already up for sale. I will certainly be there, I think, hosting one or two talks in the big sort of symposium tent area, and it is one of our favorite shows of the year. It's it's always great. It's a, it's a fantastic laugh. It's a good group of people. The, the guys who run it and put it together are amazing. And uh, yeah, we would love to see you there. Um, so 8th and 9th of May, stick it in the diary. And if you're around in that part of the country, go and pre-book your ticket now. Um, while I'm at it, Daryl's still scrolling furiously yeah. through his phone. I'm just going to mention uh, our, a thank you to our Patreons which this week top tier are Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman from rdcontracting.co.uk, Chris Griffith, John Henry Pete, Tom McCraith, the guys at South Ayrshire Stalking, James Benjamin Normandale, and James Marchington. Thank you very, very much uh, for contributing so generously to the podcast and all those people who we haven't mentioned uh, who, are, um, who support the podcast on lower tiers, Absolutely every penny, cent, pound, however you donate, is uh, massively appreciated. And it does make a difference. It allows me to do things like I've been doing the last two days, where I just drove up to Inverness. I did a podcast with Sam Thompson, uh, which was a lot of fun as well. We did it with beer and chocolate. And that's going to be the first podcast of 2020. And I was at a salmon hatchery uh, on the West Coast yesterday afternoon with Chris Conroy and a few other people to bring a podcast sort of... A half interview, half from the field. Um, so it took a, so, quite a bit of time, so quite a bit of driving. But even the one dollar makes a difference. Yeah. It makes us being, you know, because driving to Inverness is it's a six hour six hour affair. Yeah, it takes time. Fuel in the UK is not that cheap. <laughs> so we are able to do such things because of your support. And if you would like to support the podcast, uh, maybe this can be your your thing for the start Christmas. of twenty twenty. Um, support <laughs> treat yourself podcast. at Christmas. And <laughs> treat treat yourself to treat us uh, and support the show. Just go over to Patreon and search the Pace Brothers, and you can have a look at all the tiers. It'll be in the link of the, it is the show as well. I found it. It's not the latest, but the it is from the twenty eighth of last month. So okay, I would say pretty. Yeah, three really awesome reviews. Let's and, give those people uh, a shout out if they have names. That I can't see names oh, okay. uh, unless the unless they you'll know who you it. are. <laughs> so uh, there's one. So this is uh, one the end of last month. Said what awesome work you're doing. Thank you so much for the quality and variousness of the subjects and guests on your shows. Definitely the best podcast about conservation, nature lovers, and hunting I've heard in years. Whoa. I hope more non-native English-speaking people will take the opportunity to listen to the show. Thinking about my friends in France and Germany. Oh, Keep cool. on the good work, lads. Big cheers from South Bavaria. Maxim. Oh, amazing. Yeah, so this person left their name at the bottom, but the other ones I can't see names. Oh, that's very generous. Uh, uh, I can read another one, actually. Uh, I'm not sure where these podcasts, these reviews actually are. are on. Oh, they're on Apple, actually. Um, this one here is, as a late-onset hunter coming into the countryside a good deal older than most, I lack the community and knowledge of these issues that uh, many grew up in the Pace Brothers cover a global range of conservation hunting topics and have been a big part in my education in these areas along with expanding and educating my view of the world around me so Fantastic. I don't have a name for that I'm afraid but well, that's, that's a great lead into this podcast because Nicole only took up hunting when she was 30 there we go 
So it's uh, it is actually a topic that is covered in this podcast. Sorry for the the raspy voice. Uh, we're lucky this show didn't go out even five days ago because I was lying, uh, dying on my sofa. A lot of people have been ill recently. In, in it fact, took me three days. I'm obviously tougher than Dal, but it took him like about eight. Took, took me about eight days, which actually I think is not bad because I know people that have been down for two weeks. Like properly down. Properly down with it for two weeks. So whatever it is, I think it was the plague or <laughs> Ebola or something along those lines. But you've shaken it off now. Just, just, but I've got the, I've still got the, the, the frog, the ra- and the odd little cough, like I've been in the mines for too long. <laughs> we have a winner from our competition two weeks ago, which was uh, a sound competition. And the sound, it wasn't guessed correctly by many people, I have to say. No, it was a hard one, actually. It was a, it was a slightly harder one than, than in previous weeks. But it was a Skylark. So if you're wondering what that sound was, it was a Skylark. And uh, if you're around in our hills, or not even in our, our hills, even not very far from where we live here, in springtime, that, you is, do hear them. that is one of yeah. the sounds of spring. Uh, so congratulations to Sam Dean. Now, Sam Dean has won before, <laughs> so it seems, because when I was looking up, uh, he entered through Instagram. Uh, it turns out that he won a previous copy. So, I mean, we do it completely fairly. We just randomly pick somebody, and he's just very, very lucky that he won a won copy twice. of Volume 3 Modern Huntsman with us. Uh, so what we're going to do, Sam, is we will send you out a copy of Volume 4. I think you're in the States. You are, uh, yes, I believe you're in the States. So just confirm that with us when you hear that you are the winner. And we will get a copy of Volumes 4 sent out to you from the States rather than us sending it from here. Uh, And of course, uh, beautiful synergy with this show. Not only have we just mentioned the competition, which is supported by Modern Huntsman, where you win a copy, uh, but guest editor in chief of Modern Huntsman in this podcast, Nicole. This podcast has been supported uh, for a long time now by the team at Modern Huntsman. So uh, they allow us to, to bring you this show every two weeks. Uh, and if you don't know what we're talking about, you're about to find out more detail, but go onto the Modern Huntsman website. And uh, if you haven't seen it before, it'll blow you away. It's close to Christmas. It is. Where it's imminently upon us. I just had an early Christmas present <laughs> from my brother. <laughs> he brought back um, a Maasai knife from his trip in Tanzania. It was very cool. Yeah, if you do say so yourself. It was I, I got one myself. So. <laughs> it, it, it was extremely cool. Yeah. It's going to join all my other um, killing implements that I have from different parts of the world. Yeah, I um, I arrived in the UK with a spear and two knives uh, walk, walking through the airport. And uh, the spear was broken down as much as I could, but it's still a big thing. And I was a bit worried I wasn't going to get through the through air, the airport but you did I did I did I mean there's nothing wrong with these these I, I guess maybe if you landed in Heathrow they might be a bit more dubious towards like massive spears I, and I, knives I try not to in. ask too many questions when I bring such things home <laughs> We're giving it away now. Yeah. Uh, we mustn't forget that we need to run another competition. Oh, we do, yeah. So uh, if you're entering this competition hoping to get the correct answer in and get your copy of Modern Huntsman before Christmas, that's not going to happen because it takes two weeks to run this competition on the podcast. Yes. Uh, but you'll but get it just after. You will get it just after and we would love you to enter. And we're going we're gonna to keep with the theme which has been the end of this I, year. I hope everyone's been enjoying the animal sounds. Yeah. Let, let us know if you have... Have you learned something? Yeah, have you learned something? Have you, have you been enjoying them? Uh, if you have, I don't know, if you have another suggestion. A suggestion, no, no, in fact, a suggestion for a sound that might be a strange yeah, animal we that we that. don't know about. Send us in a sound. Uh, that would be pretty cool. A so, dog's tail banging against the wall <laughs> or something. I don't know. So we're going to play you a sound now. Uh, all you have to do is contact us with the correct answer. And in two weeks' time, we will announce the winner and you'll win a copy of Volume 3, Modern Huntsman.
So guess this sound. So hopefully you've all guessed the sound and uh, get entering on Instagram, Facebook, on the email. The emails are actually very popular for the sound. Yeah, so it podcast is. at paceproductionsuk.com, paste underscore brothers on the, the Instagram. It's easy for us to track it on email too. Yeah, it is. Uh, and on Instagram, it's pretty easy yeah, as well. Yeah, we have a place to save them. You've got a place to save it because now they've got like two inboxes in there. It's crazy. Uh, I was going to mention uh, Game Changer. Netflix documentary that everyone is talking about, as well as uh, the program the BBC has aired about a week ago. I'm trying to remember what it was called. It was, called. It was called Meat. Yeah, it was about meat. Yeah, uh, I'm going to find. Uh, I'm going to find what it's actually called uh, now. But it's been causing a lot of uh, upset from everyone so the meat one from the bbc was looking at farming practices particularly but most of it was filmed in america and, and south america kind of distorted british meat production yeah so the farmers are very upset about it in the uk understandably because it is effectively attacking their livelihood and industry uh and the, yeah, and it's not even looking at the practices that get done here, which uh, from my understanding and what I've seen, the animal welfare practices here are, are held to a, a much higher standard than they are in the US, let alone South, South America. America. And I, I haven't actually seen the program, but from the articles that I read that came out after, I think that one of the issues was that there was zero distinction made. No, there wasn't. It was this broad sweeping statement yeah. about all cattle production and beef production. Yes, uh, and uh, looking at the the Game Changer documentary, and this is a Netflix, said, yeah, Netflix show, and the premise of the show is showing you basically that you should not be eating meat, and it shows you uh, professional athletes and how well they're doing on, on meat-free diets. Uh, but there's been a few issues with it, one being that James Cameron was the producer, director, director yeah. of it, and he owns a plant-based f- uh, uh, food company. Uh, also, incentive, also eh? as well as that, uh, if you listen to the Joe Rogan show, uh, I would love to get someone with a bit of knowledge on nutrition on our show talking about it, is uh, that a large amount of these professional athletes, not talking about this documentary, but just in general, uh, that go to the vegan lifestyle don't last particularly long on it. There are a couple of examples of people who have done it for a long time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. Most of them, they, they try it for a bit. They feel better. Yes, for initially. a short period of time. And they're having to also take supplements a lot, as well. Yeah. And then eventually they kind of reverse back, back to a more vegetarian and then a little bit of supplement supplement with meat Uh, because as it's talked about in the show there is certain people that can live fine with no meat but there's a huge amount of us that Need that protein. Need, need, need it, yeah. Yeah, we should dig into that more. It would be a really interesting podcast. If we can but that was, just, that was just one one snippet of the, the whole show because they also go on about uh, in the Game Changer thing about cattle and CO2. and uh, But the thing they forget to mention is that there is some farming practices that can effectively be carbon, carbon neutral, neutral yeah. uh, if you look after the grasslands and the... What? Well, that's yeah. That was one of the clips that came out afterwards on social that was excluded from the film. Was talking about carbon neutral 
a beef production. Yes, which is, is was, a real thing. <laughs> yeah, which is a real thing. I mean, it's not that common, to be no. fair, but uh, at the extremes, you know. Yeah, it is. It is the extreme end. But the point being is that even if, let's say, you've got a vast majority of farming practices that go on here, uh, they might not be carbon neutral, but they I don't think they're quite as bad as what they're putting on. No, well, what they completely failed to mention was that successfully and efficiently managing grasslands is a massive carbon sink. Massive. There was a study done. It was a farmer in the US and his uh, his grass wasn't doing too well. So he actually hired someone to study the soils and they taught him how to do proper rotations with the cattle. And now he is basically a carbon farmer. That's what he is. He's uh, He obviously doesn't make any money from it. Uh, but that's how he manages. That's his how farm. he manages his farm now, based on the carbon uh, footprint that he's doing, and he's now having some more successful uh, yields and grass uh, growing, and thus the cattle are doing better. Doing better. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that should be one of our plans. For the early part of 2020 would be we need to go watch all those programs and then get some real experts on to talk about it from both sides. I wonder who who would be best because there's one thing just getting someone that was like an ex-vegan on to talk about it but I No, I'm talking about science. Yeah, no, like yeah. we need a, a nutritionist or a biologist well, or both. I think uh, we probably need maybe someone from the ecology side yeah. and then probably from yeah, the human there's, there's, the human there's element. There's two different parts to yeah. this. There's one there's of, the environmental impact and then there's also can a human actually Yeah. So probably some form of doctor that specializes in nutrition. Yeah. So uh, if we you will, know anyone, let us know, please. Yeah, please do. But but otherwise, we will work on that. Bring you something uh, next yeah, year. Yeah, especially the, you know the sporting side of things because that's where very much they're trying to push. I think we can probably contact somebody in yeah. the sporting world fairly easily um, to talk about that. So I think uh, we will leave you to it. We have one more show uh, before Christmas. One more before Christmas. Uh, which I think, as it stands right now, I'm planning on editing together the podcast that I did with Chris at the fish farm. That'll which is going to be a slightly different format. So it's a little, quite a bit more work, but a slightly different format to what you're used to. A little bit of interview, a little bit of in-the-field chat. So what we want to do, because we always have a break between Christmas and New Year, because everyone's with their families and you know people are doing other things. But uh, when we first launched the podcast, going on five years now, uh, we on the first year, there was like one person downloaded on Christmas Day. We're like, wow, yeah, that, that was because per- we only had like five listeners. Yeah, well, yeah <laughs> a few hundred, but... But now, I think last year, we had three, four hundred people downloading on Christmas morning. And it was definitely just people that got like new phones, new iPads. But the fact that there was hundreds of people downloading the show on Christmas Day was pretty cool. It was cool. Uh, But there's always a slump between Christmas and New Year. So what our plan is... We have some time off and we let you guys not listen to us. Not listen to us. But I think in January, you want to make, kick it off with like the highest downloaded show that we've ever had. It's going to be sad. Yeah. Because Sam has been the first show of the year and it always does really well for the last two years. So we're going to put it, Sam's out and then we've got an amazing one with Ben, uh, ben O'Williams. But I think that's the, the push. We need to make it. Big January. It's going to be the, the highest downloaded show that we've had ever and that will also push us into the charts. Yeah. So please look out at the start of January and get ready to download what we put out. Yes. And subscribe. Hit subscribe. And while you're talking around the dinner table at Christmas and New Year and whatever talk, other talk, festive things that you show. do. Tell other people to listen to the show. Yeah, and we have uh, more podcast car stickers for yes. inside and outside the car. And all of the all of our Patreon supporters on every single tier, uh, all the things that we are due you have now been fulfilled. That guy posted them two days ago, so you should be getting them all through. The so if you join the one dollar tier of the 
of the Patreon, you get you, a podcast sticker. You get a podcast sticker. So it's worthwhile joining Patreon yeah. to get your sticker. <laughs> yeah, but if you're going to buy a sticker, go join Patreon. Exactly. Thanks very much for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Nicole, <laughs> welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Oh, it's so good hopefully to be we're, here. Hopefully we're going to continue the way that we've started, which is just full of laughter. Yes. <laughs> I'm feeling a little bit left out because uh, I'm sitting here with a cup of tea, and you've got a an incredibly large glass of whiskey, <laughs> and Tyler has a beer. I mean, not because they don't let me drink or anything, but because I decided that tea was what was required. I tried. <laughs> I tried to pressure you into an Oktoberfest pumpkin beer. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. You never told me that's what it was. Mm. And, and for those people listening, yes, Tyler is here as well. He is stepping in for my brother once again uh, because he, I think he's home now, but he hasn't actually told me if he's home, but I assume he's got back from Tanzania. Okay. Doing he, my best to do comedy, Daryl. So we met for the first time, I don't know, like four or five days ago. Yeah, like last weekend. Yeah. Yeah. It, I feel like it was the same, like exactly a week ago. Yeah, it was. It was last Friday night. It was great to have so many people in the room involved in this next volume of Modern Huntsman, which is basically all I've been thinking about and doing all week. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> which is, I hope my other job doesn't listen to this. <laughs> Just you kidding. have another job? Didn't you know? No, I didn't. I thought this was this was it for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm the hunting and fishing editor for gearjunkie.com. So I write about outdoor gear. But not this week. <sighs> yes. Yes, this week. Okay. Yes, very much so this yes. week. Once, yeah. once you knocked it's off work, a... then you were doing Modern Huntsman stuff. Yeah, exactly. Okay. It, it's been... A... You know, it was funny today because I started working and and i which, which I just working? like had uh my full-time Your job day working. Job, okay. yeah um and i just couldn't focus and i was like i'll just do some work this weekend uh yeah it's been a lot of the grind but yeah. like a good grind it's yeah. really fun so how was your what was your original hookup with tyler and modern huntsman team how did that come about it's kind of funny it's sort of like shades of gray but um i was working with Corey emerson from chama chairs yeah and Corey, um, I had talked a little bit. I feel like he just said something like, you guys would get along. And um, and Tyler and I were connected through that. So that but was some time know, ago. It's kind of just like- we emailed back and forth a couple times about contributions and things like that. And as you know, it's just been kind of a little bit of a hectic. Uh, and so when, once we decided to do the women's issue and bring in editors – um, you know, I had her on my list and, and so we just reached back out and initially you were just going to be an help us editing. And yeah. Then, kind of like do some advising and do some like associate editor. Yeah. Cause Jillian so. had agreed to be editor in chief and then Jillian just had too much going on. And anyways, it was fire season and all that. And Jillian and I both at the same time was like, well, we should get Nicole to do that. So yeah, here we are. It's like, it's a huge honor. Thank you. I'm That's really glad to have it. you. Yeah, it's been great Cheers, to have guys. you on board. Oh, thank you. And how, how have you have you been enjoying the process? Uh, yeah, like with, I the, think with the sort of the group of people that have been pulled in to do this this incredible volume. Right. Well, I mean, the volume focuses on women, and I think sort of by default, <laughs> I've been able to have a voice in that sphere in the hunting world, and um, I I've. It's been pretty incredible to be able to not only develop relationships further that I've already had in the industry. Um, Jess Johnson has been a good friend for a long time. Um, yeah, we just podcasted with her. Yeah, she's fabulous. In fact, her podcast is already out as we recorded. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah, it's gone. Um, and then Jillian and I have 
um, been mutual admirers of each other for a long time. We've actually never met in person, but um, just through the process and I've gone to her through for like for opinions throughout this. So it's been really nice to have someone to bounce things off of. And um, I think we have like a very similar outlook on a lot of things. So it's been nice to sort of have her as like an echo in the back of my mind. Um, and then, you know, with all the other women that we've been able to bring in and work with, it's, um, I mean, there's a multitude of experience and personalities and levels of storytelling from um, all over the planet. And that's a crazy gift. Like it, it's an, it's an absolute gift to be able to work with people that, can bring me out of my like very like Montana Western hunting element, you know, um, and, and kind of open my eyes to other things that are going on. So it's, yeah. Um, in my regular life, you know, I'm working a lot with brands and writing a lot about gear and writing a lot of news stories. So to be able to devote a lot of my time to something that's like more, creative nonfiction, like a little bit more, um, like focused on science and story. Like it's been a gift. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your contribution, uh, for this volume. Cause I, I'd read it for the first time yesterday. Where did the inspiration for that come from? Um, uh, so I wrote a story that right now is titled going it alone. I, I mean, I think it's pretty like apt, but I mean, I'm open to change. I, I wanted to write about hunting by myself and sort of um, being in the backcountry by myself. I've been backpacking solo since 2014. And my first backpacking trip, I did 150 miles on the Continental Divide Trail by myself. That's hardcore. Yeah, it was pretty... Uh, I tend to be an all-in type of person. Um, so <laughs> there's there's no really like... Uh, no halfway house. Yeah, there's no like backwater way in. Like it's it's full dive. So, um, I did that and cut cut my teeth real quickly, and um, and kind of from there, I especially being outside alone, it w- it was really like uh, you become very aware of what's going on r- around you, and I was able to have a lot of really cool experiences with wildlife. Being by myself, um, when you move quietly through the woods, um, things don't leave. So you walk into situations that can be scary, but you also walk into situations that can be uh, very eye-opening. And through those experiences, I, I became really curious about becoming a hunter because I felt like if there was one factor uh, or like one faction of people that had... Um, the experiences that I was having out in the woods by myself, it was probably the hunting population. So, but anyway, so it, it was sort of a, um, like a self revelation, like out on the trail. And then that's kind of what the story is about. It's about this finding yourself by yourself. Yeah. And, and coming up against that fear, which I think a lot of people have and dealing with it. I think there's, for me, like there's a, there's a certain, contentment that you find by yourself not all the time but sometimes which you can't find when you're with other people I agree yeah there's also like a sense of capability and like being able to say oh I'm, I'm really capable yeah of this and taking care of myself back here um and that I think that especially as 
I don't know that there's like that big of a difference between like men and women going out in the woods, but I think as women, we're conditioned to have a lot of fears about being alone, you know, and like the way that I've experienced the world is like, <laughs> like walking by a dark alley and being like, I'm not going to take that way. I'm going to take the way, you know, like even if my car is like right on the other side of it, like I'm going to take the, mm. the street lit way, you know? So there, there are certain things that like we've just been conditioned to think um, as women that I think, at least for this particular volume and what we're writing about, I think there is some gender specificity to facing those fears, to understanding that like you're able to be alone in the backcountry. Um, I do a lot of traveling. I've done international travel by myself. Um and it's all been really like liberating. And so really like the core of that story is like not being afraid to face uh, the things that you're afraid of. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. you know, it's a little circular, but um, yeah. And interwoven into that story is my um, 2018 mule deer buck yeah. that I har well, I killed by myself. I love the, I love the to and fro between that. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Because yeah. it's it like, yeah, it kept jumping between those sort of two aspects, and I thought that was a real, a real nice flow. I hope it doesn't spoil part of the theme of the story, but technically, <laughs> in the story, you're not hunting by yourself. You have um, a companion. That's true. My companion is fear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to weave in the story um, because I feel like there, there are characteristics of hunting that are like. Um, like very like final, you know, I think like you have to take the shot, right? And and there are so many things that go into that moment, but there are so many things that come after it. And and for me that that is such an emotional buildup and it's such an emotional letdown. And so I think when you take the life of an animal, like for me, it hasn't been a part of my life until the past five years. So I'm 35. So I didn't even pick up a gun until I was 30 years old. And it's been a very like transformative experience, but it's also one that's been very um, tenuous. And that like, um, I'm a beginner, you know, like I still see myself as a beginner. Um, even, you know, the, with the past like three animals that I've killed, two out of the past three I've killed solo. So you know, after my first year, I was like, okay, I'm going to go out and kind of figure this out for myself. It, it must have been a little daunting, though, just picking up hunting at that point in your life. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that because you're a woman. For a man oh, or yeah. a woman, 30 years old, it's not part of your life. Like, where, where, where was your starting point? Because that's quite often a question that people have is, I'm intrigued where by started? this, but where do I start? Because it, it wasn't handed down to them by their parents, which, you know, it so often is. I think that I, I'm an exceptional circumstance because I went from that backpacking trip to um, working on the television show Meat Eater. <laughs> so, okay. so, so you flipped from one extreme to the other. Well, yeah. So, I mean, most people who listen to this podcast will have probably watched Meat Eater. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's I, I was super lucky. I, and and um, I love telling this story because um, I, I'd worked in corporate America for my 20s basically like I went into um, a service program called the AmeriCorps after college and then after that I basically worked in corporate sales and so I moved to Montana for a job in corporate publishing um, and I managed the Montana Idaho region for basically a textbook publisher and um, so publishing is a good fit for you now though. 
Yeah, it certainly yeah. is. It's, I'm on the I'm on the more fun side of it. I'm on the side that I'm better at at this point. But um, I hated that job, and I, especially living in Bozeman at that point, I came to this conclusion that you know um, <laughs> I didn't want to hand my life away to corporate America. Like I really wanted to have some ownership, and and I felt like that space was going to be in the outdoors. I certainly never saw it as being hunting, but. Um, I went, I took a summer off, I took a severance, uh, I bartended and kind of took some odd jobs for a while until I was like, okay, I want to go into media and then took a summer off, backpacked. Um, Where was this, by the way? This is all in Bozeman. In, oh, it was in Bozeman. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, then I came back to Bozeman, I was looking for a job and I found a social media gig on Craigslist for a show called Mediator. Which you'd never heard of. <laughs> Which I'd never heard of. <laughs> and oh, I like food. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, you know, it was funny because I was like, I don't want to work on a hunting show because like my preconcept, my preconceived notion of a hunting show was that, you know, it was kind of redneck. And some of them um, are. And some of them really are. Yeah. And I, I had no interest in that side of it, but I went and read, I, I went to the library and pulled some of Vernella's books. Which one did you read? The one on Buffalo? No, I read The Scavenger's Guide to Hook Cuisine, which is that. so fabulous. Yeah, it's my favorite Vernella book. Um, it's Have the you book read the Buffalo book, though? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That's still your favorite. Because the Buffalo book's exceptional. It is. I can't remember what it's called. It's but not Scavenger's called, it's not called the Buffalo book. Scavenger's Guide to Hook Cuisine is um, like true storytelling, you know? Okay. And I think that like when you look at... Not that American Buffalo isn't, but um, American Buffalo is certainly like incredibly well researched yeah, it's an really amazing well. story and it i guess it has that like weaving element right from going from like the history of the bison yeah, it's a storytelling with a yeah, historical aspect which it. is which is incredible writing like it's it's certainly an amazing book but on a level of like storytelling um i love scavenger's guide to haute cuisine I'm it's a look it up. yeah you should um basically Renala found um escoffier's cookbook from 1901 and he ends up taking a year to like travel all around the states and get all these like crazy ingredients so like he raises or he has to like get pigeons from like underneath like a an interstate i don't know it's like it's 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 really funny and it's like um it's a pretty charming book and it's very different from i think a lot of what steve's work was after that but so this was obviously enough for you to say, yeah, I'll. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it was telling. It was telling the story of hunting and like a very different, um, from a very different viewpoint. And so, uh, so, so to get back to your question, as someone who was beginning, who was curious about hunting, I mean, there there isn't a more like exceptional opportunity to fall in your lap than be to be surrounded by. Um, people that I think are some of the best mentors in hunting t- today. You know, I sat six feet away from Giannis Patelis. Um, I was working with Steve every day. I mean, like, those types of opportunities aren't something that, like, most people get. And so I'm super grateful for it. It's like, not only has it carved So your learning curve career, would have been steep. It was a steep learning curve. Yeah, I mean, I stepped into the social media role, and I was truly like a non-hunter at that point. You know, I hadn't even gone to hunter's ed. So, like, learning how to communicate as a hunter, I mean, it was basically me asking Giannis, like, 400 questions a day, (laughs) you know, Um, and making a lot of mistakes along the way, too, I think. Um, But we also kind of had the room to make mistakes at that point. I mean, our audience was pretty small. In the course of the two years that I was there, I grew the... (laughs) 
Oh my god. Sorry. That's all right. That, that was Wyatt so good. Howling. I think it's why it's probably mule deer or the shadow of mule deer. <laughs> They're evil. We, we, we've had them singing in the car most of the day while we've been driving. Oh, nice. So essentially, <laughs> um, I'm in the situation where, like, the, our audience is pretty small at this point. So, um, essentially, when I stepped in, we had I think I think they just hit like a hundred thousand on Facebook. That was kind of like this is twenty December twenty fourteen. So like everything was kind of just starting. It was like algorithmically like the most beautiful time to be in social media. Yeah. Um, not like now. Not like now. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I picked up Meat Eater when it had 10,000 followers on Instagram, and um, within two years, I had grown it to 100,000. Wow. So um, a lot of that was how do you channel somebody's voice, and how do you do it in a way that's responsible? So like, so I feel like from Steve's ethic, from like working in a place where we were really focused on story, and then figuring out how do I translate this to a greater audience that's going to pull in more people, right? So um, I was always thinking about that broader picture. Um, I didn't want it to be, and I mean, neither did Steve or anyone there. It was It's a group effort. But how do we share, like, what we're doing with the broadest community possible? I mean, like, not only is that the best goal for your audience, right? But as far as telling a good hunting story, I mean, I just, I still don't think there's anyone that's quite done it like Stephen Ornella has. So I, I felt um, very lucky to be in that particular scenario. And I can't say one way or another whether I would have become a hunter or not. You know what I mean? If I hadn't have found that particular avenue, um, which made it super accessible, but I'm I mean, sure I still had, had to there was work no, for no it. No shortage of offers for people taking it at that point because you're um, working in an office for the people who are hunting all the time. Well, Giannis took me on my very first hunt, but beyond that, I really did have to work for myself to find it. Okay. And so, um, I was um, volunteering with backcountry hunters and anglers, and that's actually oh, where I met my hunting partners huh. so T- tell us a little bit about bha because um like outside of north america most people don't know yeah, but no, i think bha are great yeah so uh backcountry hunters and anglers is a public lands advocacy group um technically they're out of missoula montana but um they're an international organization they have chapters across canada and the u.s and goals to expand more broadly um but they do great work. A lot of the work that they do is access-based, so um, figuring out how to get hun- hunters and anglers more access. They also do a lot of um, like um, conservation work. You know, like when we went through the National Monuments debacle, they were really fighting for a lot of those protections. Um, it seems to be quite a – you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but f- my impression of it from what I've read and, and hear – it's quite a young group of people in terms of an organization. Huge. In terms of a hunting organization, yeah. it's incredibly young. Yeah. Um, I think the average person is between like 36 and 44. Wow. You know, um, and when you think about like Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or some of these other organizations, um, they tend to be a little bit older. But I mean, that's also, I think that a lot of people 
come to conservation when they're a little bit older and they're kind of out of their like youth phase of hunting and they might have a little bit more money to dedicate to conservation. You know what I mean? So BHA has made it really accessible to young people. I mean, you can pay $25 and be a member of the organization. So I think um, they've done a really good job at figuring out what their demographic is. Lantani is the CEO and president. And um, I always say he's like the, um, like he's like the star of the football team. You know what I mean? Like he's like a great cheerleader and he's really good at sort of like rallying the team and bringing everybody in. Um, there are a lot of really incredible people working there doing amazing things. They have a great program for bringing in new hunters. Um, right now it's more focused on like college aged kids. Um, that's great. Yeah. I need, I, need super to get, cool. I need to get him on the podcast actually. Some you point. should. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's a lot of fun. Um, so that was your kind of, that's how you managed to get your access and, and build friendships within the hunting industry in the early days. Yeah. We, um, we started like our own like mini chapter in Bozeman to work oh, on, cool. work on, um, like different conservation issues like around town and figure out like what we could do to help people get access, um, or, you know, have more mentors and, and that type of thing. So it was a lot of fun. And, and a lot of those people are still in like my core friend and hunting group. Hmm. So what was your, um, what was your first hunt alone by yourself? Like at what, at what point did you feel like, okay, I can do this by myself? Well, my first hunt alone, <laughs> my first hunt alone was actually, um, after I went with Giannis. So it would have been like my second time hunting, you wow. know? So I just went out and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, you know? Um, and I ended up taking a shot at a deer and I missed, which like, I'm, I'm really grateful that I, <laughs> that I missed uh, because I'm not sure that I would have known what, what to, to do. do. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that I would have figured it out. And actually it was kind of, it was actually um, only about 30 minutes away from where we are. And there were a couple of older gentlemen and they were in a pickup truck in the parking lot. And um, I was going to walk down the trail and, and, you know, go hunting. And they were like, well, if you get something, let us know and we'll come help you. So I kind of felt like I had a little bit of backup, but um, I like to do things, not necessarily to accomplish them, but like to experience them, you know? So I think a lot of it was, can I go hunting by myself? Can I find habitat? Like, will I come into, you know, will I find deer, you know? So um, that was kind of my first foray into it. And that was 2015. And then, um, I mean, my first like real hunt by myself would have been that 2016 hunt where I killed the deer. Um, I write about that in the article, um, after nine days of hunting by myself across the state of Montana. So it was kind of an epic road It's a lot of hunting. Yeah, I did a lot. So I was actually working at Backcountry Hunters and Anglers then. That's why I left Meat Eater to go work at Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and do... The, like some of their media for a year and um we were able to take a week, week they call it a backcountry week so sounds like an excuse to go hunting yeah it's a big <laughs> excuse to go hunting for everybody on staff um it's an amazing excuse to go hunting and you have to use it to to either hunt or fish oh, so, right so this is like prescribed yeah it's part of your like employment package there with holidays on top of it or is yeah, this like it's, a, it's your like the greatest allowed. vacation structure. It's like hunters, it's like a group of hunters and anglers got together and they're like, "What do we want for vacation?" And I mean, as far as like U.S. Uh, vacation, um. <laughs> so we got three weeks of paid vacation and then a backcountry week on top of that. Jeez. For the U.S., that's pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah um, that's really good. Yeah, so it was amazing because I, I hunted probably forty days that fall. 
like in the midst of doing a full-time job. There's a lot of very jealous people listening to this podcast right now. <laughs> 40 yeah. days. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I was really excited and adamant to fill my tag that year. So I got to put a lot of miles on the ground and um, do a lot of time just waiting and, you know, spotting and stalking. And I had a lot of opportunities and I wanted to wait until the right one. And um, I was really lucky that I came into my lap on that last day. So I'm, I'm just thinking to myself that we need to, we need to structure our time better, Tyler, so we can yeah, hunt a bit I know, more. I know. We did manage. A I few don't get to hunt that much today. now. I know. That's Even the, as a freelance. <laughs> yeah, Dude, that's the worst writer. though. I, I did way more hunting when I wasn't freelancing. Great. Way more because your time is structured. Yes, because it's structured. And then, and in fact, I did way more hunting when I hated my job. Well, yeah, don't we all? Yeah, because <laughs> I hated my job. So as soon as I stopped, as soon as I wasn't doing that job, I was doing the things that I enjoyed. But because I'm kind of immersed in the things that I enjoy all the time. I seem to forget to go and actually do the thing that I enjoy, which is go hunting. Although we did get, I did for the first time get to cast in the Yellowstone River today. Which I'm so I, excited for you. It's something that I've it's wanted to do since a little kid. Maybe one day you'll catch a fish there. Yeah, maybe one day. I, 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 it was a little slow. It was a little slow today. I, I had a really shit guide, uh, and he wasn't very good on the oars. <laughs> no, I didn't care. It was it was beautiful to float the Yellowstone. It's a and gift. cast a fly. Yeah, yeah it's it was so a cool. pretty day. It, it's been such a weird season, though, and especially with the snow. We were laughing today. We were driving into town, and Livingston, all the leaves were in the road. So literally, with that one snowstorm, all the leaves turned yellow and died and fell off the tree. So yeah, in it's one really day. depressing. It was no, all, no fall season. We had no fall. <laughs> we had no fall. Yeah, I mean the trees are are still in this like transitive state of like changing from green to yellow, and it's. it's yeah, it's hard. This is my favorite season. To, so for it to just skip Disappear. is, yeah. is like really, <laughs> yeah, it's, it like, it's a real kick in the stomach. So being involved uh, as much as you have been in the the media and social media space within the hunting world, have you seen any sort of major mistakes that we've made as a as a community? Because we often have this discussion that we haven't done, like Tyler and I have it all the time. We've had it on the podcast that we haven't done a very good job as a global community of really telling our story in a way that can be understood and people can understand the benefits of hunting. Uh, you know, within ecosystems or yeah, conservation yeah. and management. Um, I mean, you must have been looking at it all the time. What's your sort of you know, feeling on that because I imagine all the stuff that you were putting out, you must have had that in the back of your mind where you're, try time, yeah, you're trying yeah. to engage with people who aren't just hunters. Well, and that's, that's the thing, right, is that um, I actually grew up in the Midwest and then um, came out West. Uh, we moved t from Ohio to Colorado when I was in high school. So I was 16 when we moved to Colorado. Um, and then I spent the majority of my adult life in the West. I lived in Boston for a year, but... Um, I, I certainly like have, and I had preconceived notions like prior to coming into hunting. And I think that like, it's impossible to not see media images of hunting. Um, even if you're just, you know, a regular member of the public and typically it's a negative so <laughs> situation, what your, right? What was your feeling? Cause that's sort of, that's 30 years, right? Yeah. So well, the third, or had you not, had you kind of I was, dipped in a little bit or not really? I was never against hunting. You uh -huh. know, it was just like so out of my purview. Um, it was never 
a part of like my <laughs> internal life to really okay. be thinking about it. So you never concerned it. yourself about it to really form a strong opinion one way or the other. No, and I, but I, I also and it's a bit think more that normalized I like, here in, in North America than in other parts. Of the it is too. like I grew up around whitetail hunting in Ohio, so that was like a deep part of like the general culture. You could you know? see it around you. Yeah, I actually before we moved, I was going to take my hunter's ed Just because ex- like explain hunter's ed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay well, once you're finished, explain. Hunter's yeah. Ed so hunter's ed is essentially uh, a class that every hunter in America for the most part, it has to take. In some, state, in some states, there are, like, age... You can age out of it. Like, technically, I didn't have to take Hunter's Ed in yeah, Montana. Yeah, I think we're, our year was the last year. If you were born... It's January 1st, 1985. So they were gra- oh, it was 85. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so... Um, so we both, like, hit that. <laughs> like, we didn't yeah, we technically got, have yeah. to. But, I mean, there are a lot of states that you go to that you have to have Hunter's Ed. So it was like, well, I need Hunter's Ed anyway. Like, um, I hunted uh, ducks and geese in Washington last year. I needed my Hunter's Ed to be able to go over there and hunt. So um, hunters, that is essentially like a course that you take where you fulfill a time requirement of education um, in order to be able to hunt. Simple as that. Simple as that. So you can well, do it, you can do it from the time you... that you're like 10 to 12 years old. Um, my friend's daughter just did it. She's 13. So like when you're a kid, you take it in a classroom. So you have to do a certain number of classroom hours, like 15 to 20 hours in a classroom. Um, for adults, we can take it online, and then we do a field course. So, like, um, it's usually, like, four hours long, and you go out and you shoot twenty twos and shotguns, and um, it's essentially a gun safety course. More than anything, it's a gun, gun safety course. course. And then you have to take a bow hunter's ed class if you want to archery hunt. So um, I actually got a lot more out of the bow hunter class. Not that I, you know, have anything against gun safety, <laughs> like, you know, um, but as far as like being a hunter, like a hunter's education, yeah, they teach you how to track and all of that kind of stuff. So I wished that I had taken the archery class in addition to like the initial hunter's ed class, because I think that it would have given me a more holistic understanding, like going into, into being a hunter. So do you need to prove that you've got your hunter's ed before you can buy an over the counter? Usually. You can. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't, I'm not sure if you were going to buy a license, yeah, they would probably ask you for Hunter's Ed, even if it was an Upland license. So, so how would you? If you're under under the age limit, yeah, yeah, eighty five is a cutoff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So I would, I'd, yeah. have, I'd need it. Yeah. So I wonder how that works though. For Get to work. Do your Hunter's Ed. There must be a, there must be a way around it because people come in and hunt with outfitters all the time in North America, and they don't have to do the Hunter's Ed. Foreign hunters. Yeah, I but I think the outfitters probably get the licenses and uh, tags for them. For so you're them. not getting, yeah. yeah, okay. You're not mm. buying it over the counter. It's, uh, yeah, we don't I'd have. I'd be interested in, in actually how that works. So yeah. We should look into it. Yeah. Uh, it's not something I've done, so I don't know yet. Uh, but we don't, I mean, we have, there are training courses that you can do back in the UK, but none of it's required. Yeah, there might be some reciprocity though. Like if there's a hunting like course there that. Would be reciprocal. Oh, to like he, something. here, no, but what I'm just, uh, what, what I meant was that, you know, it's everyone does it here. Oh, that, yeah. Unless you're a certain age. Yeah. Uh, whereas at home, I'd say most people don't do, haven't done any of the courses. Although oh, right. they do exist, there's no requirement to do them. Uh, and there's a lot of resistance actually to making them compulsory. A lot of resistance. Whereas, you know, there, we're, there are conversations being had that, you know, why shouldn't we? You know, why shouldn't we have a certain level of training before you can, you know, take a gun into the pills and go hunt uh, and at least be able to prove that? 
Um, and I think the resistance largely comes from the older. It's one of the few the things older... our country has gotten right. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the the resistance comes largely speaking from the older parts of the community, right? Because um, they see it as traditional and something well, they I think passed they just down. Feel no, like, like you know, they, they always did that, so why should they have to do something now? But I suppose maybe one of the ways to do it would be like what you've done is everyone born after a certain date. Yeah, you got to do the training course. Yeah. I think it's pretty fair. What, so one of the actually, just I'm just thinking now. Actually, I can I remember the last time I discussed this. It was at a, a game fair, and it was on a panel debate. And one of the arguments that came up was we should never do that because it adds another barrier for people entering into the hunting space. What, what would you say to that? Because you have. I would that say that that's actually uh, <laughs> to think of education as a barrier to me is a little mind blowing. Like I think that like. Uh, if there's one thing that actually gives people access to anything, it's, it's educating education. them. So I, I, you know, I think that there are a lot of people that take hunters ed and do go out by themselves and try to figure it out. I mean, that was one of the interesting things working on meat eater. I like fielded a lot of our messages from people and people were always like, how do I do this? How do I get access? And I mean, the first thing we're able to be like, is, you know, go to your hunters ed, like, talk to your instructors, find out like what you have available for you. I mean, like in some States they have, um, they have like a becoming an outdoors woman program. So like you can go hunt pheasants, you know, with mentors and women and they like take you out there and kind of walk you through it. Or, um, you know, there's, there's other ways to get in touch with different mentoring communities. So I don't know. I think to think of education as a barrier, I mean, our hunters ed costs like $25, um, which is hardly an economic barrier to anyone. I mean, our, like my elk tag is eighteen dollars, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's um, yeah. No, to I, mean, me, I, it's I would be tempted to agree wonky. with you. In fact, I'm going to steal that argument. Yeah, the next time do. it comes up, and I'm going to say exactly that. You know, education should never be seen as a barrier because you're right. You know, it is to uh, you know make us better at what we we do. Yeah. Yeah, as long as it doesn't cost too much. Yeah, I mean, if it was a five hundred dollar course, we'd have a yeah, lot less hunters, you yeah. know. Like, I I think that like when you make it, I mean, the nice thing is is that like it's all already out there. Like, if you go to huntered.org, I think it, it you know, hunter edorg I think it's thirty five dollars. Yeah, something it's not, like that. It's like between twenty five and thirty five bucks. Yeah. And it's like it's you you know, I mean, like I said, I didn't have to take it, but I. I did. And, um, I mean, that was before I thought that I would ever hunt out of state and I wanted to take it because I, you know, I wanted to have access to the information that was out there. Mm. Um, so I get the distinct feeling and impression now that from just sort of finding your way into hunting, it's now become a pretty large part of your life. Yeah. At least for a part of the year. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think it's been really interesting because I, I feel like I have so many, like when you think of yourself as as like the entirety of your persona, right? Like there are so many people within hunting that like they identify as a hunter. Like uh, like I know so many people in Montana that like we're the, both sitting here in green right now. Could you identify? Yeah, us yeah. Hunters? Well, to I be mean, fair, I wear green all the time. So so do I. That's why I had to go and buy some new clothes for this trip because I didn't have anything that wasn't green. <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing. Well. Um, At least it wasn't old camo. Yeah, kudos it's for just, solids. It's just solids. Yeah, we need more solids out there. Um, I've been really excited to like see more solids coming into women's gear, I, like on an aside. Um, but I lost my train. <laughs> Where are we? I, I, what, uh, oh, hunter's identity. Yeah. Okay, so so yes, yeah, so uh, 
it's very interesting because like hunter hunting is so traditional and familial in much of the states. So like, I think there are a lot of people that grow up like on their dad's hip or like, you know, in the backpack, basically like hunting from the time that they're three years old, you know? So like hunting has been like such a defining characteristic for them. Like they identify as a hunter. Like for me, hunting is like a part of my whole, I don't like as much as it's a part of my life and now it's become a part of my profession and it's something I'm really passionate about. Like, I feel like there's still, like, multitudes of other things that have been, like, giant factors leading up to who I am. And hunting has occupied such a small time time period of that. So I, like, I like to honor it because I think it's been really transformative. But, um, yeah, understanding it as part of my identity has been, um, like, a little bit of a journey to be able to tell people that I'm a hunter. You're, like, five years in. Yeah, yeah, I'm still young. So, like in my hunting terms, right? So like there's um the the feeling of still being a beginner, but like being really lucky and that like I get to share that with other people, you know? I I mean there's a real um kind of honor in being able to like be in the position that I am to communicate to so many people um while still being a beginner, but I think that there's also like a little bit of grace in that because I can tell people like how to get started, right? Like mm-hmm. um cuz people at the at the start of their journeys can very much relate because it's it's sometimes e- easy to forget or I, I probably have forgotten a lot of it what it was like going through those phases because I was so young. You know, I was right. like 2 years old. Right. And when so I, like, when I was first at, you know out doing stuff like obviously, obviously I wasn't actually doing it but I was <laughs> I was partaking in it because I was following my dad around like a shadow totally yeah. and I and I think that like the reality of that is that when you're an expert in something you don't necessarily know what to tell people I think that like some of the best teachers aren't necessarily the best like even within the hunting sphere right like you can look at some of the most expert hunters in the world. They're not necessarily going to be the best teachers. Like a lot of what they learned is through things they've intuited by watching other people, by being mentored, like by being in all these different positions. But like nobody ever told me, you know, when to walk up my, to my deer and figure out if it was alive or not. Right. So. Because it's a default thing that people have been doing it for so long. Just. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I think that there are so many things that um, people that grow up traditionally hunting, have, you know, it reminds, like, I go back to this example, but um, I've ridden horses my whole life, and that's been a huge part of who I am. Yeah, and we were talking about saddles yeah, every, time, yeah. every time I've met you. I know, <laughs> I, it's been such a pain in the ass. Uh, I've been trying to find a saddle for my horse, and she's just impossible. Um, but, uh, yeah, so a lot of what I learned as a rider, like, especially starting out very young, was by watching. So, I mean, I think it's the same thing in hunting. I think a lot of people go and they're able to have all of these experiences around hunts before they actually hunt. And I never, my first deer hunt, the first time that I saw a deer die was at my own hands. So that's like wow. a very different yeah. uh, entry point, you know? Um, and, and I wish it hadn't have been like, I wish it hadn't been that way. You know, that's I wish quite, that I'd experienced it. That's a lot to take in. Oh yeah, it was um, to see that for the first time. Well, and I took point, a bad shot at that point in your life, yeah. um, having never seen it before. Because you know, I watched a lot of hunting going on around me. You know, in many forms, from birds to deer and rabbits and everything else. Yeah, way before I'd pull the trigger myself on something like that. 
Yeah, and it was um it was totally mind blowing. It like completely rocked my world and I I took a bad initial shot. I mean, I think like when you're under that kind of pressure, like it was almost one of those moments where it's like, can I pull a trigger on an animal? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, can I do this? And um and it was just kind of like you know, I think that we do everyone a disservice when we tell beginning hunters where like you need to take a perfect shot. Well, there is no perfect shot when you're a beginner. There's just the there's just the first shot and it's probably not going to be perfect. And so I like I took two imperfect shots on my first two deer. Luckily, my second deer, I hit I hit I hit him in the jugular and so like he died really really quickly. Um but there's a learning curve to it, you know. On my third deer, I took like the most perfect spot on shot. Mm-hmm. But I had to go through those other experiences to get there, to be able to like be cool and calm and collected, to like really like be in the moment and like not be overcome by the sense of adrenaline. And I'm and I'm happy to share those stories because I don't think it makes me a bad hunter. It just makes me someone it who's makes learned. you an honest hunter. Yeah. And I think that in those uh you know those early experiences if I was to think back at it for me is that what was more important was that I was truly concerned about how I'd taken the shots. Cuz it it because I wanted to do the best job that I could. And of course, it's not going to be perfect when you start out, but you keep pushing towards trying to make sure that you are being the most um, efficient and ethical hunter that you can be right. so that you're reducing all of those risks around yes. not taking a shot that's going to drop an animal quickly. Right. Yeah. And I practice, yeah. and, but there's nothing like having an animal on the yeah. other side of the scope. Mm. Oh, I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. I cried for days after which is, my which first is, year. Which is not how, what the... The public at mass would perceive a no, absolutely to be not. A uh, that was like person. that was the absolute. But it bothered you. Oh, absolutely! It bothered me like for two years that <laughs> I took such a bad, you know, like and it and it wasn't. It really wasn't like that terrible. Within twenty minutes, you know, he was he was on the ground, and he, you know, the second shot was taken. So it's like how. <laughs> You know, it's very hard to mitigate that. It's hard to going from not being a hunter to being in this really terrible situation and being like, oh, I got into hunting because I wanted to mitigate suffering. You know, I wanted to get out of like a, like a food cycle that I felt was putting suf- suffering in undue places. And then I'm inflicting suffering. It was. It's a very like, for somebody like me, who's a ruminator and I sit with my thoughts for a very, very long time, um... It was incredibly difficult. It's one of those things that, like, I think with horseback riding, like, I've I've really been raised, like, with the mantra of if you fall off, you get back on, you know? So, like, there was never any room in my childhood for quitting, you know? If something went wrong, like, suck it up. Like, you're going you're gonna to do this, right? Um, and I write about that a little bit in that story, like, writing about resilience, you know, th- like, I think there were a lot of people that might have gone through that experience and been like, that's enough. And, you know, I maybe I'm also a glutton per- for punishment. You know, there there's two sides to every coin. But I think that um, I wasn't going to – I wanted to get it right before I made a decision whether I was going to stick with it or not. You know, and by the time I got it right, it was 
four years in. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I, I, I've also duck hunted and bird hunted and, and I love that. Like it was, it was a really interesting thing to have fun while hunting because big game hunting is so like deeply spiritual and serious for me. But like to go out and bird hunting. The more social aspect of bird hunting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's so social and, and it's very quick, right? Like the birds come in and you take a shot. Like, I mean, it was an hour and a half that I, I walked in a mile and a quarter on my buck last year in the sage. So like it was a, it was a long time to like, Suss out a relationship to an animal. At the end of it, it's like, oh, I've like gotten attached to this creature that I've been watching. Like they're in the rut. He's chasing a doe. Like um, he was like super mellow. You, you learn know? a little bit of their life. Yeah, 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 yeah. You spend a little bit of their time with them. With birds, it's like very quick. You know, or like my 2017 buck. I basically came over a hillside. I was actually on the way back to the car. I I thought that I was done hunting for my trip and ended up running into a herd of 14 mule deer, um, like hiking back to the, back to my car. Um, and it was a very split second thing. So I had to make a decision. There was a forky buck. There was a really nice buck actually in that herd, but he was surrounded by does. And there was a little forky buck like right there broadside. And I just set up and, you know, within two minutes, I had a deer on the ground. So like, and I didn't cry at all in that situation. You know, I was just grateful that it was fast. It's like, oh, I still made a mistake, but luckily the mistake worked out in my favor. And I had a really great experience and, um, and yeah, it was, I didn't, it wasn't emotional in any way except for just deep gratitude. I'd also done a lot of hunting that year, you know? So like I'd spent my time on the ground and that's really like what I love about it. You know, I think it's like so much that same thing that I loved about backpacking, you know, and spending a lot of time outside hiking. Um, You just get to have experiences that nobody else has and hunting, um, especially here in Montana, it brings me into landscapes that I would have never chosen to go into otherwise. Because there'd be no reason to go there. There's no reason to go there, yeah. you know. Um, I say that to people a lot. And like, yeah, but I like walking. It's like, yeah, it's a little bit different. I mean, I kind of like hiking and walking too, uh, to, to a point. I normally have a fishing rod with me. I need, I need some sort of purpose. Yeah. Uh, but you do most definitely go to places that you would never go. Right, because it's good habitat, Yeah. right? And I think a lot of times when we think about like walking or hiking, it's like, let's go to a destination. It's a point A to point B yeah. to point C. It's normally a peak. You're going yeah, to, like right? a peak or a waterfall yeah. or, you know, a scenic place, right? Yeah. Like you're always going to something. You're not experiencing the landscape along the way. Like when you're hunting, like every single step that you take, there's a different sense of awareness and there's a different sense of being in that moment. I'm curious, as someone who hasn't been doing it for all that long and found hunting, you know, after 30 years of living, would it bother you if you couldn't hunt in 10 years' time, if there were there was no hunting for you? I guess it would depend on why there was no hunting. Well, you know how, I mean, if you, if you look around the globe, it's hunting uh, as an activity is increasingly under threat Right. You know, there's a lot of people who don't like the mere notion that somebody would go out 
and kill something. Right. They don't they don't like that concept. They don't dig into it very deep, but they don't like that concept. And so little bit but by little bit. But they'll also like eat a burger for well, dinner. Yeah, well, yeah, we, we've had this discussion <laughs> before. It's, I didn't say it made sense. Uh, but around the world, there is most definitely a move towards... A stigma. Yeah, yeah uh, to certainly not being sympathetic towards hunting. Right. And, you know, I, I honestly don't know some forms of hunting that, are, that exist right now uh, in the UK. I would be very surprised if they're still there in my lifetime. Yeah. It bothers me a lot because it's all I've ever known. Right. Whereas you know a life that it wasn't part of that. Is it? Does it have an impact on you now where you're concerned about hunting continuing to the future and other people being able to access it and get from it what you've got from it? I don't know that it generationally that, like, I don't think that hunting in North America is as deeply under threat as other parts of the world as it's well in other parts of the world and as it's being made out to be right now there's like um i've noticed this since i got into hunting there's like a very deep persecution of complex Mm -hmm. um or complex of persecution sorry and that's the whiskey talking um (laughs) have another one thank you yeah (laughs) no it's just gonna get more interesting from here on out so there's like this complex of persecution where you know, people are like, oh, on social media, I need to like be super defensive about hunting. And, you know, hunting is declining, which means that like we're not going to have any money for conservation. And, you know, there are all these arguments that are like taking hold. And like, I think people for some reason like need something to be afraid of. Um, I personally don't see it happening, at least within like the next decade, right? Like, it's not a very long time. A decade? No. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, I I think that, like, you know, if I have kids or, like, if I look at my nephew, if my nephew becomes a hunter and he's four years old, like, will he end up having some issues in the future with hunting? Like, perhaps, you know, like, I think think I'm less worried about, like, the public perception of hunting than I am about – uh, climate and habitat and how that's going to change the face of hunting mm. in a long-term scale. I wonder if that's uh, I wonder if that's reflective of how socially acceptable it is here. Because I think I, th- if I was to ask that same question, but I, I don't have the opportunity to ask somebody very often who has found hunting, you know, sort of halfway through their lives. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know whether it would be the same. But if I was to ask that same question. In many other parts of the world and around Europe, I don't think it would be the same answer. But and I certainly feel that when I came here for the first time, it, I felt like, hey, you know, these are kind of my people. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, I fit in. It's socially acceptable. I see it everywhere I look. You know, every, everywhere I look, someone has a sticker on the back of their pickup right. that tells me that they're supporting some sort of, you know, fishing or conservation or hunting. That's not the case at home. It's yeah, not, my license plate has um, a guy packing a mule deer and a gal well, fishing Well, there you go, it. right? You don't see that at home, and you don't really see that across Europe. There, there are some places like you know in, in the uh, in the high altitudes in in Austria where those communities are very um, you know you see it everywhere you look, but it's it's not the feeling there, and it's not the feeling on like on the, in Africa, right? Uh, and I think that's maybe a testament to you know how well you're holding on to it here. Um, so it's it's an intriguing answer that you know, I think maybe the threats are bigger outside of North America. What do you think, Tyler? I th- yeah, I think that 
Africa and in particular the UK, just learning from you that under threat, but I think that even though we as hunters in America aren't necessarily under threat, I feel like social media in America is the biggest threat to global hunting. Maybe UK second to that. I don't yeah, know. Maybe, yeah. But so I think there's a lot of sentiment and anti-hunting sentiment in the U.S. for Africa or for whatever is put out on the headlines, and so I think that's kind of something that we have to be aware of. Um, and I think that regardless of whether the U.S. general public's perception of hunting is good or bad, you know, you, you say the word hunter and they think a specific thing. Right, and they think more of the bucks and trucks and six packs and redneck kind of stuff, and they associate that with every use of the word. and And even though that's not necessarily threatening our ability to do that, I think that uh, broadening the conversation or bringing them into the conversation is made a lot harder because of that. So, hmm. I feel like um, I and you know i maybe this is like the nature of the circles that i run in but i mean the majority of my friends are non-hunters right so i come from like i came from this world that's like completely external and then like within hunters it's like a very insular community and um like when i talk to my friends in new york city or my you know my friends in la about hunting like nobody i've never gotten a negative response about it like at least like at least not to my face you know like it's always been like that's amazing like what does the meat taste like like how is it different like tell me more about it and i think that like goes back to being responsible for our own stories right and then my friends are like how the hell did you get into this right <laughs> like you you went from like one thing to another and how did this transition happen like let's talk about it so i think like And if you do actually look at the stats, like 70% of people in North America are for hunting, you know? So it it becomes like a very interesting thing because I think it's touched a lot of people in different ways, you know? Um, I think like the locavore movement and the food movement has changed things a lot. Um, And I think like here, when you think of hunting as like a public good that's run by the state... It's it's a very um, communal thing, right? In a place like Montana, it's just a part of our culture. But even in a place like Ohio, it was a part of the culture, right? I think I was saying earlier, like, I almost took Hunter's Ed um, because, like, all of my guy friends hunted whitetail deer with their families, and they were like, you should come to deer camp with us. And I was like, oh, I can go drink beer underage, you know, like at hunting camp. <laughs> and so, like, I was going to get my hunter's head to, like, so go to... So you could go drink beer. Yeah, so I could go drink beer with my guy friends. So um, it, it it's funny, like, um, I ended up moving before that happened, so I ended up taking hunter's head later in life. But it, it was funny to look back and have this, like, odd memory of being like, oh, yeah, like, I was, you know, I was this close to becoming involved in something and you know who knows if it would have stuck or if i you know if it was just me being a kid right yeah Yeah. so it's i i tend i think because i've been so outside of the circle of hunting for the majority of my life i tend to have like a little bit of faith that like the majority of people where they might not like the cecil the lion story right like they don't necessarily uh, have a deep emotional reaction to, you know, the whitetails that are hunted in their backyard. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one. I didn't really have an answer to that when I asked you the question, but um, yeah, well, <laughs> I, I I know that our if you if you were to talk about uh, talk about it like approval rating for hunting in the UK, I guarantee ours isn't seventy percent. Yeah, no way, not a chance, and that's just reflective of you know class different 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 cultures. Yeah, yeah different um, parts of the world. I mean, okay, so if like the if the scenario is that in ten years I can't hunt because of like social issues. <laughs> then yeah, I'd probably end up becoming like a lobbyist. And I'd be like, how do we tell different stories? Like, how do we get this back? You know, I and I mean, I think that like, it would be incredibly disturbing to see that change because I do believe in the North American model of wildlife management. I think that- Which includes hunting as part of it. Which includes hunting as part of it. And I, you know, I think when you tell people those stories, um, you know, I had like a, I had a really interesting reaction with one of my girlfriends at a wedding. She's from LA. She like works in the film world and, um, and we were talking and she was like, I just don't understand this grizzly bear hunt. And I was like, um, I think I'd also had a few drinks. So I was just sort of like not ready to get into that conversation. And, and I was like, well, do you believe in climate change? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, well, climate change is, backed by science, right? She was like, yes. And I was like, well, so is the grizzly bear hunt. <laughs> it's backed by by population science, you know? And so, like, it, we're not going in and killing 700 grizzly bears. Yeah, it was like 21. Yeah, it yeah, it's under 20 bears, and, and that tag number changes. So I explained to her how it works, and she's like, well, I guess I'm, I can't, you know, I'd be a hypocrite if I said that I wasn't for it now, <laughs> you know? And so I think that, like, It's when just you, simple conversations like that. Yeah, and I, well, and I think, like, drawing that, like, metaphor of, like, you're a smart person. The problem would have been if she said no. Right. Well, well. It's the Dale Carnegie method. You get him saying yes to a couple of questions. You set him up for the slam dunk. Well yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, my my mom gave me how to win friends and influence people when I was a very there you go. young woman. So you influenced her. <laughs> I haven't read that. It's good. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, uh, it's, it's really, you know, it's kind of funny too. It's just like a, it's, it's like the most silly book i listened to it uh, i listened to the audiobook and there's like classical music that plays in between <laughs> the sections like dun, 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 dun. like okay this was made in the 1950s all right <laughs> yeah it's a great book it's, yes it's fun tell me a little bit about your uh, your day job that you started telling us about that you were definitely doing this week what does that what does that entail because um, you, yeah gear junkie right gear junkie so yeah. you review, I, I used to review a lot of gear. Oh, you did? Yeah. I mean, I guns and gear and all that kind of shit. Eventually I got bored to tears with it. So I stopped doing it a, a couple of years yeah. ago. I, I, once I'd reviewed every gun that existed, I was like, I don't need to shoot guns anymore. I, yeah. I like the guns I have in my cupboard and I can't be bothered zeroing another gun and taking it hunting. Well, that's one of those things that like, I don't feel like I'm expert enough to try like i'm uh, yeah i'll try out a pair of pants but like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna test a gun you know like i i just don't feel like i'm at that level but as an editor like i have writers that can go, go and, and do all that testing yeah. yeah so i mean uh that's working, what everyone wants to read everyone wants to read a gun review the new guns right? come out. Yeah. yeah yeah well gear junkie is really interesting it um so I went from working from one Steven to another Steven. Uh, Steven Reginald started Gear Junkie like in, I think it was like the late 90s. It ended up being like a syndicated. Oh, wow. so it's old. It's old. Yeah. Well, so it started out as a syndicated column in newspapers where he was huh. writing about gear. 
So it was sort of like the the final golden age of newspapers. And then in 2006, they transitioned it into an online platform. And so it's become like um, essentially really one of the top performing gear publications online. Um, our SEO just crushes it like out of the park. But the majority of Gear Junkie is actually like skiing, hiking, climbing, mountaineering, um, oh, so, cover so a lot of across news. the spectrum of outdoors. Yeah. So Hunt and Fish is actually like really new. So I ended up coming on as their editor in October. They'd had one editor prior um, for like a couple months. Um, but um, yeah, I've been doing it for a year now, actually. So um, it wasn't an initial part of their platform, but the editor-in-chief, Sean McCoy, um, is this epic dude. And um, he is one of those guys that will like run like a 50K marathon and then like go elk hunting the next day you know like he's just a total badass so he was really into hunting and like he wanted to see like what we could do in that arena so um it's been really fun like I, I really love working with brands I get to work with a lot of brands on their products and um figure out you know um the ins and out of what what works and what doesn't um and I have a lot of great contributors that have stepped in and been writing for me so it's a it's a super fun gig. It's crazy. I mean, I <laughs> the amount of gear that I have right now is like really overwhelming for me. Like I'm I'm a total minimalist. So which actually like I think makes me a pretty good gear reviewer because I'm like, do I need this? Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um and I think the question that a lot of people ask about reviewing gear is like, well, are you honest? And mm -hmm. I think Gear Junkie has really like set the tone for like honest reviews. Honest reviews. So because there's a lot of unhonest reviews. There, out there, there certainly are, and I think that it does everyone a disservice because the the brand can't go back and make the product better, right? So like, if if I'm writing a review and you know there's an issue with like a pair of boots, yeah. um, like I like the brand doesn't get a chance to address that you know, the next year. And so I think there's like, there's a good relationship between Gear Junkie and a lot of brands because they want to know what's going on in the field. Yeah. Um, and there's no like, if someone sends me free gear, like there's one, like no guarantee that I have the time to review every piece of gear that I get. But two, like it's going to be blatant honest and I'll say that there have been like a few situations where like something hasn't been up to muster and like I'd rather just go back to the brand and be like hey like I'm not <laughs> you know like there's something really like fundamentally wrong there's something fundamentally wrong like I have to do that with a piece like in the next week and it's like it's I mean, never something you look forward to it's the only way to do it I had exactly the same well, thing <laughs> the dog ones <laughs> I had the exactly the same thing with rifles and I think through a decade of doing rifle reviews, I think I had two, possibly three rifles that were so shit, I couldn't write a review on them. Well, I mean, I could have written, I could have written, I could have done two things. I could have written a review that didn't tell the truth. And I, I when I took that, the, the role of writing, uh, took over the role of a rifle reviewing, my first discussion with the editor was, look, I am not going to write it like the previous person. And actually, quite frankly, at the time, a lot of people in the industry in the UK were, which was not particularly honest reviews about rifles. Like You could never find a bad one, which is rubbish. Yeah. Um, I said, I'm going to write exactly what I think about this stuff. And he said, yeah, fine, no problem. It pissed a few people off. It pissed a few writers off because the reviews wouldn't match up. 
And it upset a few... Um, and they were essentially like... Like, it comes down to integrity, yeah, right? Yeah, and that yeah. was far more important to me. And it upset a few manufacturers in the early days. It's not like I was slagging them. It's just that they weren't used to actually getting feedback. Well, <laughs> But right, then I had yeah. these feed rifles that were so bad. So what I did with those... I mean, one, I actually snapped the bolt handle off while I was hunting with it. The bolt <laughs> handle sad. snapped in my hand. And I just sent it back to them. I said, look, this is what happened. I don't want to write a review on it because this, 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 this... This, 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 and yeah, this absolutely. is wrong with it. Yeah. Um, so I think that the best thing is I give you this feedback. I've told you this, and I, I'm just, we're not going to write anything about it. We're not going to run it. Uh, and then I don't have to lie to an audience, and then they get feedback. And eventually they kind of got used to it. And eventually I used to get thanks for pulling up feedback. Yeah, that's, you know, and even, that's the reality. In, even in printed stuff. You know, I, I had a, a couple of manufacturers over the years. Um, pick up the phone and saying, you know, thank you for an honest review. We know about that. We, you know, we know about these things. You know, yeah. they're not stupid. They they design and make guns. They know if something's not quite right. But nobody probably, wants there's, nobody there's wants to make a bad product. No, there's probably a reason. It would have been yeah. a budgetary restraint <laughs> or something. So, oh, that's that's good. So you guys, you guys have managed to have the the or you've built the integrity of reviewing. Yeah, it's a cool niche. And I mean, we do work with brands and they'll sponsor things, but no one's ever allowed to sponsor a review. Yeah. It's like when we do sponsored articles, it's usually educational or, you know, something around different utilities, right? So like, it's never about how good or bad Mm -hmm. the gear is. So I think, I think there are ways to like hold integrity, like across the board in that world. Um, And I, I, I think Gear Junkie does an amazing job at it. It's been a total like pleasure to work with the whole crew. Like it's an awesome group of people. So I feel pretty lucky to have the opportunity to do that. Cool. Just as a, as we start to kind of wrap the podcast up, one of the things that I wanted to ask you was, do you feel like um, as a woman getting into hunting, there was any, or maybe not for you because you've kind of told us your story, but for other women that you now know in the hunting space, experience sort of barriers to get in? I think that they're the only, I think the, the true barrier is finding other women to hunt with. Like I feel like I, I had amazing hunting partners and I certainly have hunted with women, but I had to be really intentional in order to like create space to hunt with other women. I actually hold a deer camp once a year that's open to any woman who wants to come from anywhere. So like it's happening in, it's October 31st to November 4th, and I have, like, between 22 and 25 women coming oh, up wow. for it. So it's it's kind of a big camp, but it's a total DIY, like, you know, come hunt. So I think I have women from, like, six states coming this oh, year. incredible. Yeah, so um, I intentionally wanted to make it, like, an open space for people to come hunt because it can just be very difficult to find other women that, like, one, you think that you want to hunt with, and two that are just around you to hunt with. You know, I think it says something that like so many women come from so far to hunt with a group of women. Um, but I think that's sort of the nice thing about making it an open camp is that anyone can show up, you know? So like, you don't have like, you don't have a deep choice of who you're hunting with. Like, um, and last year was the first time doing it and it was just the most positive experience and I, I, like, don't want to be cliche about it um, at all. Um, but, like, it, it truly, like, there wasn't a bad 
moment in camp, you know? I think a lot of women were really nervous to come and hunt with a bunch of women they didn't know. Um, I certainly was, you know? It's hard to know what you're going into. Um, and this year we have a lot of new women coming in, so, uh, you know, you never really know what to expect. But um, everybody just comes with kind of open minds, and it's been really fun. I think on the side of barriers for women... Um, I think there are some barriers for women and being able to hunt and in a way that, and I learned this really at camp in a way that like they have ownership over their experience. I think a lot of women that I know hunt with partners or, you know, boyfriends, husbands, family that are, are more experienced than them. At least at this point, like the majority of the women that I know are people that came to hunting as adults. So they came to hunting through partners, through boyfriends, whatever, and so they've never really gotten to hunt their own hunt. Okay. Um, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. So, uh, and I didn't really realize that I was kind of outside of that because I had, you know, I killed my deer that like the year prior by myself. So I had had that opportunity to like sort of go and take an active uh, role in my hunting life. Um, but I know that I'm certainly the exception, not the rule. Um, so being in that camp and like listening to all these women's stories and how much they love hunting with their partners and their husbands, but how incredible it was for them to feel like they could do it on their own and to feel like they had, they could be a leader like within their hunting party party, but that it was also like a very collaborative effort, which they weren't used to having like in like a mentor mentee situation, you know? And I think like, I mean, I've done things with partners before, like whether it's fishing or whatever, where it's, you know, it might be more difficult for us <laughs> to hunt together than it would be for me just to hunt with someone that isn't my romantic partner. Yeah. You know? yeah. So um, <laughs> I think it's nice for women to have that break and, and to hunt with each other and, and see how it is different. And, you know, a lot of it was like really goofy and fun and um it was hard hunting last year. We're going to a different spot in Montana this year um, that's, like, pretty deer-heavy. So I'm hoping that we're able to fill a few more tags. But we were able to put meat on the table last year, which was cool. Have you had any international guests? Not yet. Not yet? Yeah. So is, is it possible? Sure. So how do people find out about it? Just find me on Instagram. Which is? Well, if you look up NKQ, you'll probably find me. But it's NK Qualtieri, which is my last name. So... Okay, so for, for 2020, I'm expecting some international contributions yeah, to yeah. Deer Camp. And by then, by then, we'll have to figure out about the Hunter's Ed for international. Yeah, yeah that's well, true. I'll, I'll, yeah. Probably, I'll try and work it out so I can mention it in the intro to this yeah. podcast. Well, maybe I'll just write an article on it and then people can go, there you go. check there you it go. out. Write an article and then I can direct people to it. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm in. Uh, we're going to wrap this podcast up, but I just wanted to finish up by, I'm not sure if I've actually asked you this question, Tyler, in the chit chats that we've had while you've been on the podcast the last couple of days, what was the, the original motivation for, I need to do a women's issue because you've mentioned it to me since almost the first time that we had a conversation when you were road mapping these different volumes that were coming out yeah. and the, the women's volume was always, you know, really close to the start of your, your game plan. I think it I think it started with I think it might have been Jillian that mm. we started talking about it. Who was in volume 1. Right. And I think that from the beginning looking at hunting narratives and what is featured 
we felt like a lot of the stories we picked were the types of stories and the in types of individuals who weren't being featured. And a lot of that was women too. So a lot of the images we were sourcing and the stories and that kind of thing. Um, and also in terms of trying to accomplish our goal, right. Which is to communicate with non hunters in a lot of cases, uh, a softer feminine touch has more impact. Right. And so Jillian and I had that conversation very early on. Like if we're going to accomplish this goal, like I think she's like, we should do an entire women's issue. And so I think that's how the conversation originally started in the beginning, uh, which is why I, you know, wanted her to be involved in that. But, uh, but then as we started to dig in and, and started to figure it out, it was just very clear that there were not enough women getting the mic and being featured about amazing things they're doing. A lot of them, because whether they were doing it for their family or, you know, uh, or, or it was a novelty, right. It was on the cover of a magazine as a publicity stunt. Right. And that was something we were very aware of from the beginning is that we didn't want it to be that we wanted it it's, very much to be, it has substance. Yeah. It's there because it deserves to be yeah. there. And the last, I, you know, I joke about this all the time, but the last thing I wanted to do was a women's issue and pretend like I know what the hell I'm talking about. Cause I don't. So that's why Nicole's here. That's why Jess and, and Katie Marchetti and, um, you know, Jess Johnson, everybody. So, yeah. Finally, <laughs> last word to you, Nicole. Why do people need to go and check out? If they, uh, people who listen to this podcast will know about Modern Huntsman because Modern Huntsman support the podcast. I know for a fact, because I know how many people listen to the podcast, that not everyone has picked up a copy of Modern Huntsman. They should have already. Why do they need to pick up volume four? If they haven't, if they don't, if they haven't seen the insights of Modern Huntsman to this point. I think that, uh, I don't think that they're – I was actually talking to my family about this last night. Like, there really isn't the broad spectrum of the feminine in hunting. Like, it exists in what we're creating right now. Like, to be able to read – I feel so much less, like, isolated <laughs> by, by this. And when, when I think about, like, what we can learn together, like, as a whole, like, men, women, everyone in between, like uh, – I just I feel like there are certain things that are special and and working on this has been a special experience and I think if you want to understand hunting on a new level or from a different perspective there's such a holistic like um there's a great article that isn't it called taking aim and it's basically like these seven I think it's seven different women answering questions differently and they're from all over the world uh, answering the same questions, but answering each question differently. And it was so eye-opening to me to to see it all come together on the page that still within, you know, a group that might appear similar, like there can be so many differing viewpoints. I think like, um, I mean, getting back to that education thing that we talked about, education builds access. Like this magazine is going to or this volume is going to build access for people. And I think like the more stories we tell, like the better off we are together, you know? And I, and honestly, like, I think that the world needs a feminine touch to hunting right now. I think that like that sense of story and that sense of softness and that sense of being able to step back and understand how emotional, I'm not saying that like men can't be emotionally intelligent about hunting, but like nearly across the board in every story, there's like a really deep theme of emotional <laughs> intelligence and how it relates to taking the life of an animal. And I think that that's really, really important at this stage in the game. Nicole, Tyler, 
Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Cheers. Uh, it's the end of a, a long week, and I can't wait to start seeing the pages come together And in the next couple of weeks. Well, well, by the time this podcast goes out, it'll already be available, I think. Uh, but in the next couple of weeks, we're going to actually get to see it in print. Cool. It's going to be so fun. Thank you. Cheers. And that's it for another two weeks. We hope you enjoyed uh, the show. And as normal, if you want to contact us, uh, best way is email or Instagram. So podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. Uh, we welcome any comments, emails. We get them all the time of, uh, of, of varying degree of people uh, talking about the show or telling asking about themselves, questions. asking us questions. So we welcome them. Uh, we do reply to all of them. Sometimes it just takes a little bit of time. And on Instagram as well, obviously, we put up pictures and sound bites and all that kind of good stuff. Tell us, if you do use Instagram and you do listen to the podcast and you're still listening now at the end, if you like the little shorts that we put up on the stories, which give you a, te- uh, a teaser or taster as to the podcast that's just been released. Mm-hmm. So the next show, two weeks. Two weeks time, uh, it's going to be about river system recovery with Chris Connell. Very interesting. Very interesting. Fascinating. I learned so much. And uh, if you are new to the show, there are plenty of ways to listen. And uh, still, still ahead of uh, Spotify is Apple Apple Podcasts, but Spotify is definitely up there with one of the easiest ways to go and listen. Although I listen on Podbean on my phone, which I actually saw the other day uh, when I looked at it. There is almost two hundred people subscribed on Podbean. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. And there's like six comments. And to put that in perspective, uh, there's another show that I listen to, which is The Complete Guide to Everything. Which is huge. They've been going on for 15 years. They must have probably a few million downloads a month. And they have 500 subscribers huh. on Podbean. So I would say that's actually quite, uh, quite a good I've, I've been using uh, Google Play. Yeah. I've got that on my phone as well. I've just not used it. I've been it. using it for podcasts. There's a really yeah. cool science podcast uh, out called Shortwave which is from a public broadcaster in the States. Uh, they're like 10 or 12 minutes, and it's just a science podcast. Really fascinating. So it, when I wake up in the morning, I just put that on while I'm making my tea. Uh, or uh, if you have uh, some smart technology, get your Alexa to subscribe to the Into the Wilderness podcast. And ho- hopefully that's just turned on your Alexa <laughs> and subscribed. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Done. Yeah, that was a bit cheeky. Yeah, it was, yeah. I, do you know how they make... Do you know how they make so like there's TV adverts and radio adverts where they say the word? Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't want to say it anymore because I don't want to annoy people because it would <laughs> it would annoy me because my house is full of them. I, I let I let governments listen to me. It's, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, so what they do is when there's a they, TV, they advert, put a sound underneath that you can't hear. A, 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 yeah, an audible sound that a human ear can't hear, but the device knows what that sound is, so it stops listening when it's on, which I think is quite a cool thing. So do, do they do that with Google or with Xbox or with anything else? Yeah, that's what they do. A little sound underneath the 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 message that they're giving. They've they've used that kind of technology for a, well before that for adverts on TV and your phone and. Uh, during the during the talking about adverts, uh, this is going way off track here, but I'm going to wrap this up. But it, it made me laugh because during the Rugby World Cup, which I'm sure many of the listeners uh, watched, uh, there was an advert. Unless, uh, apart from our American, yeah, <laughs> American well, the American listeners need to go and watch a real sport called, <laughs> oh, called rugby. That's half our listenership just <laughs> disappeared now. <laughs> no, they probably agree. Like, there's no Ameri- I think American football is really cool. 
uh, and I have enjoyed watching quite a few games. I, I've got nothing bad to say against it, but I think rugby is far superior. Okay, so they right. don't wear they don't wear any pads. <laughs> Okay, carry on, uh, anyway, carry on. So during the Thank you for destroying the podcast in America. <laughs> we love you. We love you all. Uh, and if you want to take us to a game anytime, I'll go to any American game, as in baseball or yeah. um, or basketball. I'd love to go any any of those games. So anyway, uh, during the Rugby World Cup, there was an advert for Deliveroo. And Deliveroo is the service which we cannot get where we live. I've used it in the States. Uh, but in the States, they'll have it. And in big cities around the UK, they've got it where they uh, you can... Like you can ring up, sorry, you go on the app on Deliveroo and go, I want a McDonald's, and they bring a McDonald's to you. So it's like any restaurant kind of thing. And there was an advert that they played on every single advert break during the Rugby World Cup for Deliveroo, and it got over 800 complaints because it was such an annoying advert, and also wasn't it was uh, kind of deceptive as well that they've been fined and uh, it's been taken off off the air. I was so glad because it made me so angry the advert. Oh, it was so annoying. So annoying. Oh, there you go. Don't make annoying adverts. Yeah. Uh, and lastly, just before we wrap up. I know, but it worked though because I'm talking about it, it on a podcast yeah, and now to thousands now- of, and now Deliveroo's probably made money from us because oh, people have no. Like, yeah. I'm going to have to edit that out. <laughs> I'm going to be at uh, Dallas, Dallas Safari Club convention in Dallas, funny enough, in January. So if you are a podcast listener and you are going to be there, let us know. Maybe we can catch up, have a beer at some point after the show. Yes. That could be fun. Yes. Uh, well, considering our, I think... I think we've actually overtaken now. On well, this American is why I was kind yeah. of concerned that you're upsetting no, American no, listeners when no. we have more people who listen in we, the States than I we think do as in of, Europe. As of last month, yeah. we now have more listeners in the in the USA than we do in any other country in the world. Yeah. Which so. is great. We, when we started this podcast five years ago, we were more than content that we were just going to have UK and maybe some like listeners some in the UK and, yeah, and a couple around there. Little did we know that it would just blow up and particularly in the US and we're so grateful for it. I think it's really cool that it's people amazing. in the it's US a, a proper are, global are wanting to listen to, to stuff coming out of the UK. To be fair, we do have a lot of American guests on here too. We do, yeah. No, we do. I, well, I'm hopefully a, we keep it fairly like, yeah. broad and across the planet, which I think we do. Yeah. No, it's cool. Well, thank you very much for listening and you'll be able to join us again in two weeks' time.